What I want to do this morning is um, talk a little bit about the new year. Every year, our culture does this thing. We call it New Year's resolutions. And we, we all like endeavor or resolve to change something about ourselves. And the results are always mixed, aren't they? Uh, it's like a kind of infamous joke that our New Year's resolutions sometimes last like a day or a month, um, but not very long quite often. Unless you're one of these like really like naturally self-disciplined people, in which case this sermon probably would just be boring to you, all right? But for the rest of us who are not just naturally really good at just ordering our lives and ordering our own souls, this is, this buds for you, all right? Uh, this this is for you, and I was talk- I usually every year I kind of kind of do a nod to this, but I don't really talk about it much. And I was talking to my wise and thought provoking wife uh, about it, and realized I really need to do a more thorough treatment of the basic question of how is it that Christians grow and change? Like, how do you change? Like, if you see something that, about you that needs to change, how do you do that? And how do you do it in a way that's actually eternally profitable, okay? Because what I'm not interested in is temporary improvements. I'm not interested in that. I want eternal transformation, right? That's always the goal. So let's start with 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10 to help us put some words around this. <clears throat> he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Okay, so Paul kind of uses this, this example of bodily training, which is very familiar to us in our culture, right? The working out, being physically fit. He said that's of some value, so we can't say it's of no value, right? It's of some value. But he says what's better? Godliness is better because it's not only valuable now in this life, it's eternally valuable forever. You don't get to take your physical fitness with you, right? But you do get to take godliness with you, right? And so he's saying put your effort into things that will actually survive your death, right? Your physical death. Put your effort, your energy, your time, your mental energy, your focus into things that actually will survive your death. When your heart stops beating, what do you get to take with you? One thing you get to take with you is your impact on other people. That's what Levi is absorbing, is the godliness of the people he's looking at, right? The people he's watching. So it's not that I'm not saying that physical fitness is a bad thing and just be a slug, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying what's better is godliness. So how, what do we do with that? For example, thinking about Paul's example of physical health, God is concerned, is concerned with things like laziness and gluttony. Those are godliness issues. Those are sin issues, right? And if you address laziness 
and gluttony in your life, then your physical fitness is going to be changed too, right? So even after your body is dead and gone or rotted away in your 80s, you still have the godliness that God worked in your heart to get you to that point, right? So Paul's not saying it's of no value. He is saying it's of some value. Another example might be typical New Year's resolutions. I'm going to get on a budget this year. Got to get my, got to get my bank account sorted out. I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to do Financial Peace University or something like that. Watch Dave Ramsey. Let Dave Ramsey yell at me some. Call me stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Right? And then I'm going to get it sorted out. But even that is not about financial security. It shouldn't be. Not for the Christian. It's about godliness. It's about being a good steward of what God has given you. It's about killing greed and idolatry in your life. It's about being a cheerful and generous giver, funding the work of the kingdom of God. That's what getting on a budget is about. And so if you destroy those sinful things, idolatry, greed, and you become a generous, cheerful giver, and you recognize that all that you have comes from God and you're just stewarding it for him, he owns everything. It's not just the, the, your tithe check that he owns. He owns all of it, and you're just working his field for him while he, and he's coming back, right? When you get that and you address the sin issues, the greed and all that stuff in your heart, what happens to your budget? Your budget gets sorted out. We all know that there are people that sort their budget out but are seriously greedy, stingy, ungenerous, unhappy people. Does God, what does God care about more? Is God going to stand at the gates of heaven with his ledger book going, hey, you didn't balance your budget, sorry, can't get in? No. But he's clear that greedy, idolatrous people are going to have a hard time making it in, right? How about time management? That's my problem. Same thing. It's not about making time for your hobbies and leisure. It's about godliness. It's about being a good steward of the time God has given you. You have a limited amount of time. It's about making room for growing in your relationship with God. It's about giving your time to eternal things and laying down your life for the church and your calling in it. Because that's why you need to make more time and make better use of your time so that you have more time to spend doing things that are eternal, Right? It's not about getting more time to sit on the couch and be a slug, right? So you exist for godliness. This is God's one singular goal for your life. He is not interested in just doing incremental improvements to make this life better, but set you up for death in the next life. You need to understand, as our culture right now gets all spun up over New Year's resolutions, that their goals are just finite. And to that end, they are, have a limited usefulness to you. He's not interested in making you rich, but he is interested in your idolatry and your generosity. All right? He wants to transform you to be more like him. And so if your motivations are in any other direction than this, 
then you're actually working at cross purposes to God. God doesn't adjust his purposes to yours, right? He just becomes a brick wall. You ever felt that way in your life? I'm trying to do this thing, and I'm just hitting this brick wall, and I feel like it's just not going to move. That's God. You're at cross purposes with God, and you need to change, right? This is how this works. It will never work to just do your own thing without him, all right? So if the goal is transformation, if the goal is godliness for the Christian, then how do we do that? I'm going to give you a list, all right? Broken up into two categories. It's weirdly organized for me, all right? Chantal looks surprised. All right. First, I have three things that we do, and then four things that we respond to. Both, and I don't want you to get deceived, this is not a meet God halfway thing. Because God is the initiating force in all of these things. Even your desire to be godly is from him, okay? This is not meeting God halfway, like if I do my part, then he does his part. No, it's all him. You're not going to get off the ground without him motivating you, all right? So the first three, I'm going to go through these uh, individually in a minute, but I'll just give you the list first. Word, prayer, and community. Those are the three things Christians do to relate to God. There's not any more. It's surprisingly simple and surprisingly difficult. Engage with the word, pray, and engage in Christian faith community, people who also believe in Jesus. Those are the three things. Whether you're a new Christian or you've been saved your entire life, those are the three things you're doing, and it's the three things that the enemy is most concerned about destroying in your life. As soon as you start trying to read your Bible, things get hard. As soon as you start to pray, it becomes hard to pray. And as soon as you try to get like implant yourself and root yourself into relationships in the church, those relationships get attacked. That's how it works. It's because those are the three things that you do to grow in your relationship with God. And they're also, interestingly enough, the three things you do to minister. All ministry is in those three areas. You're speaking the word to other people, you're praying for other people, and you're connecting relationally with other people. That's what ministry is. It's amazingly simple and amazingly difficult. And then there's things where we res- that God does and we have to respond to, okay? And if our response is bad, then we get hung up. He disciplines us, great. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Blessing, yay. Suffering, boo. Conviction. I'm going to put conviction under the category of disciplines. I really will just do three. With all seven of things of these things, not just the last four, excuse me, the last four, you are not the initiating force. You need to understand that and see that, that it's not you, it's him. All right, so let's walk our way through these. First is the word, Romans 10, 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We could read a bunch of scriptures about that, but that's the basic idea, which is you cannot become a mature Christian without engaging with the Word. 
It's actually not possible. I know it's fun to think that if I just do other spiritual things, I can bypass that thing that I don't want to do. But that's not true. I'm not saying that if you don't study your Bible every morning for an hour with some thick commentary next to you, and I'm not, then, then you're not going to grow. And I'm not saying if you don't understand everything you read, then you're not going to grow. It's one, of, one of the things I love about what Scott and Jenner are doing with the Bible reading thing is it's just reading. It, what I, I mean, I care, but it's not as important to me that you understand everything you read other but that you just read it. And if you struggle with like reading comprehension, I know some of you do. We've talked, I've talked to you about it before. Like you just have a hard time understanding what you read in general. The answer to that is to read more. It's an old English teacher talk, right? That's the answer. The only way to get better at reading is to do it. That's the only way. And the only way, if you try to take this out of, you say, I'm just going to do two. I'm going to pray and now I'm going to hang out with my Christian friends. You're going to still find yourself stunned. I've never met a mature believer that was not engaged in the word. Okay? There's just not any way around it. You need to ingest it. Like, I don't care if you read it silent to yourself, read it out loud if that's easier for you, listen to it, um, stream it, uh, CDs, whatever. Have, have your spouse or friend read it to you. I don't care how you consume it, just do it right? It's important. Maybe start with getting in this group that Jenna and Scott are doing. There's a convenient meeting with pizza involved right after the service. (laughs) Conveniently located right in this building. All you have to do is not go home when you normally go home and you have ticked off the first point in my sermon, all right? So that's the first thing. Just do that. On some kind of regularity, get engaged with the scripture. Number two is prayer. Nobody changes without it. James 4, 1 through 3 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So resolving to change without asking God will not result in godliness. That's all prayer is, talking to God, okay? Don't overcomplicate it. It would likely end in more sin, actually, at least pride, because you're the one that accomplished the change and not God. And you've accomplished nothing in regards to godliness. You might have a balanced budget and a six-pack of abs, right, and a clean house and an ordered life, but in your heart there will be pride, and God will not be pleased, and all of that dies with you, right? So Paul is rebuking them, saying, or excuse me, James is rebuking them and saying, You're frustrated because you don't have what you need, and the reason you don't have what you need is because you're not asking God. Or you're asking God for the wrong reason, wanting to take what he gives you and spend it on your own passions instead of the glory of God. He's challenging your motivation for why you're doing what you're doing. 
cannot become godly without prayer. You got to ask him. It takes humility, doesn't it? Because you're, in order to even begin to pray, you have to admit that he's the source and you're not. You have to admit your weakness. It's like asking your neighbor for help. Men hate doing that. We don't ask for directions and we don't ask for help. You're having trouble with your car. You don't call somebody. You don't call Donnie and say, hey, what do I do? I've learned just take a picture of the mess you've created in your car. All the parts and everything. Maybe draw a circle on it. An arrow with a question mark. And text it to Donnie. He will help you, right? He probably is not happy that I'm saying that. But what does that do? It hurts your pride, doesn't it? It's the same thing with God. Stopping and praying and asking him to help you it means you have to admit that you can't do it. So it's important. And the third thing we do is community. Galatians 5, 19 through 24. I read this last week in a different context. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So both of these lists, he gives you two lists. One's works of the flesh, one's the fruit of the Spirit. They're opposing things. And they're one or the other is coming out of your life all the time. It's interesting, though, if you look at that list of the fruit of the Spirit and also the works of the flesh, they're profoundly relational. All of them are. None of them even make sense if you're by yourself. Like, what does kindness mean? What does it mean to be kind if there's no one to be kind to? Right? What does, what does it mean to be uh, in division if there's no one to be divided against? Right? It's profoundly communal and relational. In fact, the whole context of this scripture is the community of faith and how we act with it towards each other. One of the great things of the book of Hebrews, too, is that we are prone to wander off into ungodliness and the way the prescription he gives, aside from theologically understanding that we have a great high priest, the practical advice he gives in Hebrews is cling to one another. Keep one another from wandering off. So if I see Jamie wandering off in some area of his life because I'm friends with him, I grab him and I say, hey, you're wandering off. Get it together, man. <laughs> right? That's what we do for each other. And in fact, just even if it, is, it shouldn't even come to that, if you are really connected, just the presence of other godly people keeps you in check, doesn't it? You're just hanging out with somebody else, like, you know, as a couple, if you're married, hanging out with another couple that's godly, does something to you in your marriage because you see how they act. If you're around them long enough, you see them argue a little bit, and you see how they do it, and you go, oh, we should, we should maybe do that instead of what we do with throwing things, right? <laughs> we would break far fewer plates, right? I'd have to patch the wall less often. Right, and you start, that's what happens, and it doesn't require them saying, you know, you should really. It just, just the 
community and being around each other convicts you, doesn't it? And it helps you grow and stay on the path. That's how this works. That's how God made us. I find that often when people are stuck, and they come to me, like, well, I feel really stuck. I'm frustrated. Maybe there's some sin issue they're struggling with, or they just feel like they're not growing in their relationship with God, and they finally break and come and ask me about it. It's one of these three things they're not doing. And I feel sort of silly saying to them, you should just really read your Bible and ask God. Have you asked God? No. What's your devotional life like? Well, I haven't read the Bible in a year. Are you like in a small group or like having people over to your house? Is there any connection relationally? No, not really. I just, you know, ever since I started struggling, I just sort of backed off of all that. It's always the story. It's not just sometimes. It's always one of these three things. Or it's the next four. It's a bad response to what God is doing, all right? Starting with discipline. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son, or you could say also daughter, is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's a crazy phrase. Share his holiness. How holy is God? It's crazy. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yes. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness or godliness, we could say, to those who have been trained by it. So discipline is not punishment. If you were raised with a, with a parents that didn't get that, as soon as the word discipline comes out of the preacher's mouth, you feel funny because you immediately think punishment. I'm being, I have to pay for what I've done. I made a mistake and now I have to pay for it and be punished, right? But that's not what this is talking about. This is discipline. This is training. Like, this is like teaching your child to not put their elbows on the table or to use the potty instead of their pants, right? These things. And what do you do? You do things. You, you give them a little pain when they disobey. How, whatever form of pain you prefer to give your children, you give, you, you give them the gift of pain, right, that helps train them. And when they do it right, you give them the gift of blessing, which we'll talk about in a minute, all right? And this is what God does with us. You go the wrong way, you disobey him, you suffer. And you begin, I'm slower than most, so it takes a few times for God to whack me on the behind for me to connect the dots, you go, oh, every time I do this, I get pain. I think what I'll do, I'm just going to try it. I think I won't do that thing anymore. Right? Don't you wish your kids got that faster? Well, we're just as slow as they are. That's the discipline of the Lord. It's not punishment. It's training. This can be in the form of painful consequences in your life. 
or the quiet conviction of the Holy Spirit telling you that you blew it. That's my preferred method of discipline. And if I listen to that voice of the Holy Spirit in my heart going, hey, you just, that was a gross thing that just went off in your heart. And I just repent right there, confess it. Then I don't have to get the whack on the behind, right? I just get the conviction in my heart of the Holy Spirit and I respond to it. That's how it's supposed to work, right? Usually if you find yourself in circumstances that you know are God's discipline, that they are the result of something you've done, it's because you have not listened to the quiet voice of conviction. And you've ignored it for long enough that now God is lovingly coming to you as a father and saying, I'm not going to let this go. We're going to deal with this, right? So you respond to the discipline of the Lord with humility and repentance, or option two, harden your heart against it. If you harden your heart against it, eventually, meaning you resist, I will not, I will do this thing. I will not obey you in this area. I will not do it. Even though you keep knocking on the door of my heart saying you need to repent, you need to deal with this. If you refuse long enough, harden your heart against it, God might stop knocking on the door. My worst fear is that I will no longer be convicted over sin because that is a form of the wrath of God. Is when he stops whispering to you and stops disciplining you. Isn't that what 1 Timothy says? If you are not disciplined, then you're a father, then you're not a son or a daughter. A sign of the love of your father is his discipline. And if you were undisciplined, then you are illegitimate as sons. That's what he says. And so for God to stop disciplining you, and suddenly you feel okay and free to continue disobeying him, and there's no more consequences, you think, yay, I'm free. And that's not actually what's happening. What's actually happening is God has taken his hand off, and that's a form of the wrath of God on your life because it will eventually reap death in your life. Do not harden your heart against God's discipline. Receive it as blessing. Receive it as his love for you. When you feel that, oh, that, that, that irking inside your soul over something you did, don't shake it off like, oh, I'm just feeling guilty. I should stop that. I'm okay. Don't. Listen to it. Ask God what this is about and resolve it with him. What about blessing? That's more fun to talk about. Romans 2, 1 through 5 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he's rebuking these people for condemning others 
for things that they themselves do and get away with, right? And he says, wait a minute, why do you do that? Do you not realize that the fact that you're getting away with it, God has blessed you and been kind to you and is overlooking these things in your life that that's just because it's no big deal? Do you not realize that his kindness, even God's kindness, is meant to bring you to repentance? So think about the blessings of God in your life, the things that go right, all the times when you have blown it and God blessed you anyway. Oh, let me count the ways. The fact that any of your kids turned out well at all, the fact that you have a house and a roof over your head, if you have one, right, or a vehicle or anything good in your life at all, what should that do in your heart? It should bring you to humility and repentance. Not, I must be, I must have earned this in some way. This must be because I'm hitting, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting on all cylinders right now. This must be a sign that I'm really good. That today God loves me. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is when suffering comes, you start to assume the opposite. That God doesn't love you, and God isn't present. And the truth is, God's blessings are meant to make you go, oh man, I don't deserve this. Man, I cannot believe what he's doing for me right now. I don't, and it brings you to deeper humility and a deeper level of repentance because you're overjoyed by what how he's blessing you. Christmas is a good time to be reminded of that when you receive gifts. What should it do in your heart towards the person that gave it to you? It should make you go, oh, I wasn't entitled to anything. But look what you did for me. I know you sacrificed for this. It makes you love them more. That's why when our kids are little and they get a present they don't like from their great aunt, you know, they open the package and it's like a pack of socks or something, toothpaste, piece of broccoli or something. It's organic. Thanks, Grandma. What do you tell them? Be grateful. Find gratitude in your heart even for the bad idea of a gift, right? Because we don't want them to grow up feeling entitled to everything because that's the that's death to them, Right? It's the same thing with us. God's blessings are meant to bring you to repentance. And how you respond to God's activity of blessing you in your life will determine how you grow and how you change. Lastly, we have suffering. It's a little different from discipline. Romans 5, 3 to 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So suffering is pain and loss, not as a result of your sinful actions, but simply because God allowed it or because we're godly and being persecuted. That's what suffering is. So it often feels the same as God's discipline, but it's not the same thing. So this pain is not meaningless. You need to know that. Everybody suffers. It's coming 
if you've been through it already, you know. If you haven't, it's, everybody does. It's, it's how it is. We're guaranteed it by Jesus. What you need to see is it produces transformation and more godliness in your heart. If you respond well, if you get bitter and angry at God for allowing this terrible thing in your life, and you shake your fist at God, and you harden your heart against him, and you say, I don't deserve this. I've worked hard for you. I've done all the right things. I've been a good little boy or a good little girl. I've been to church so many times. I've listened to so many long sermons. And this is what you bring me. Cancer? Fill in the blank. When you do that, when you respond to him in bitterness and with hardness of heart, you negate the positive benefits. And you allow that thing to bring death to you. It's like you waste your suffering. To me, that's the worst, most unimaginable thing, is to go through something really hard and waste it. Instead of letting it produce godliness in you, you let it produce bitterness, and it pushes you away from God. So these are all the things that we do, the three things, word, prayer, community. That's what you're supposed to be about doing, right? And then the things God does that we have to respond well to. Sometimes as a response to your prayer, God, make me more patient. He says, by all means, of course. Discipline, right? Conviction, maybe some suffering, hopefully some blessing. All those things start to come and you go, why is this happening? And God's like, look, you asked me to make you more patient. What did you think I was going to do, right? Did you think I was just going to drop a magic pill on you? That's not how it works. I remember back in the 90s, there was a season of like where God was just really blessing the church and really amazing supernatural things were happening. And I remember feeling frustrated because I would get prayer and I would have this profound spiritual experience where I would just really feel the presence of God and then I would be frustrated because I wasn't more patient. And I realized that the way God teaches us patience is not to magically just turn a button and make he makes you be patient. He gives you things to be patient over, right? And character, godliness is like that. It is a long-term project that you cannot do by yourself. So what I'd like to do this morning, if you think about, first you just ask the Holy Spirit to show you what he wants to work on, right? Make, well, it's be different from everybody. Instead of just looking at your life in a kind of carnal way and going, what do I, what's causing me the most frustration in my life and that I need to fix? It's a bad way to approach it. Then you start from a carnal perspective. Instead, just stop and ask God. Because I think this idea of New Year's resolutions is a really great one. It's just, why don't we do it eternally? Why don't we seek after godliness together? And that stuff not only benefits you in this life, but it is something you take with you into the next one. I think that would be a pretty powerful thing. So I want to start. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to just pause for a minute.
and let you just listen to God. If you're like, you don't know how to do that, just be quiet for a minute. And whatever comes to mind, right? Whatever, just pay attention to what you're feeling and what you're thinking about, right? And let God just speak to you in your heart about maybe something he wants to address. It might be something that's totally invisible to everybody else. And then I'm going to pray. We're just going to ask him, you with me, for him to help you, right? Just ask for help and see what God will do, all right? So why don't we do that first?